This morning's text is from Genesis 12, 1 through 20. If you would like to read along in the Pew Bible, you'll find the text on page 8. Genesis 12, 1 through 20. The focus of the sermon today will be on verses 10 through 20. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Imagine standing at the threshold of a new chapter in your life. You have taken a a big leap of faith, packed all your bags, moved to the other side of the country, filled with so much anticipation for a great life and all the promises that await you in that new place. 
the picturesque scenery, the dream of a blissful life, everything seems perfect. But then in this picturesque place, suddenly and slowly, reality begins to unravel. The place that was supposed to be a haven for you has become a source of struggle and a source of hardship. The dream suddenly turns and becomes a nightmare. And you ask yourself, what do you do when the place to be becomes a place to flee? What do you do? Perhaps you have experienced this in your own life. A friendship, a relationship that started with excitement and hope only to be plagued with conflicts and doubts. Or maybe it's a career path that seemed like it was promising. And now it has left you feeling unfulfilled. It has left you feeling restless. Friends, we are all faced with moments when our expectations crumble and the very situations we thought were going to bring us so much joy end up bringing us so much distress. Today we delve into the story of a man named Abram, later known as Abraham, who encounters a somewhat similar predicament. God called him to a land of promise, a place where he would become a great nation. Yet as we see in this text, his journey seems to take an unexpected turn. Abram finds himself in the midst of a famine, grappling with uncertainty and grappling with doubt. See, right off the gate in chapter 12, we see that Abram is promised a place, a land, a home, that God would bless him, that God would bless those who bless him, that God would curse those who curse him. So Abraham then leaves his motherland, his father's house, and he heads toward that very land that the Lord has promised. So he settles when we, where we meet in the text in a place called Negeb which was on the southern part of Canaan. And as he is there, the place to be becomes a place to flee. A famine hits in the land, as we see in verse 10. Now there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, one would think that because God told him to go to this very place, that things would be favorable and, and perfect and bearable. But we know that this can be true, right? The testimony of the scriptures would tell us and show us that this is not true. The testimony of our own lives perhaps show the same. Your life did not become easier simply because you put your faith and trust in Christ. In fact, 
most of us could attest to how much perhaps our lives even became more difficult. Think about those times when you have come to church, have been encouraged by God's word, and you did exactly what God had called you to do from the Bible, and yet you found yourself in a place of drought, in a place of fermine. And this is what's happening to Abraham here. He has heard from God about all these promises that he has for him, and he has literally journeyed a very long way to get to the south of Canaan, but here he is, stuck in a furnished land. Friends, I'm sure we all can relate to this in some way. Fermines are part of our life in this fallen world. Trials, hardships, inconveniences seem to be a portion we can never really get rid of. And as such, Abram moves his family to another place that is not furnished so that they could survive. Now, I don't think him moving necessarily is problematic. What is, of course, problematic here is Abram is leaving the very place that God told him to go to. And he's particularly leaving without any consultation of God. And this one initial choice to up and go would lead Abram to a series of other choices that would put God's promise on his life in jeopardy and that would eventually expose a failing faith in the part of Abram. Consider with me the failing faith in verses 11 through 16. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you leave. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Trials, like fire, reveal the weaknesses in our character. Suddenly, under trials, our pride is revealed. Suddenly, under trials, our anger issues are revealed. Our idolatry is exposed. And for Abram, being under such a trial as Fermine leads him to scheme a lie and be deceptive. The fire of Fermine exposes this great man of faith to be deceptive and to be dishonest. But notice, Abram is not only deceptive, he also encourages his wife to join him in his deception. Friends, when you find yourself in a hard place, you can choose to trust and lean on God's promises or we find ourselves making foolish decisions like Abram does here. And many times we drag other people with us. Now follow Abram's logic with me for a second. He says to her, you are a beautiful woman 
She's 65, by the way. And if the Egyptians see you, they'll kill me. And then they'll take you. So, why don't you say, you're my sister? So that they don't kill me. And if they don't kill me, that's actually good for you, right? Abram's logic totally makes sense, humanly speaking. In this culture, much like my own culture back in Southern Africa, if a man was interested in a woman, they would pay a dowry to the woman's family. So Abram knows that being Sarai's brother is very, very profitable. He of course, know, he of course knows that she's actually his wife, and that comes with some advantages, but he also wants the advantages that come with her being his sister. But I also want you to note the selfishness of his conclusion. Look at verse 13. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Do you see that this is actually all about Abram? That it may go well with me, and that my life is spared for your sake. The most natural response for all of us when we go through difficult things like firmines is self-preservation. And that self-preservation is, is often leading us towards rationalizing our sin of not trusting God. And friends, on this side of the cross, we have absolute knowledge that God has been so kind and so gracious to us in sending us the Lord Jesus to take care of our biggest problem, sin. But we also forget this many times. I forget this many times, and we devise our own plans and our own ways and often find ourselves in a pickle. When faced with these two ways to live, we almost always choose self-preservation. Yet, friends, God through Jesus has promised that he would never, never leave us nor forsake us. He who cares for the lilies and the birds has promised that he will care for you. Yet here we are. We are so weirdly inconsistent. So we believe on the one hand that God has taken care of our biggest problem, sin, but do not think that it will come through for us when it comes to other things pertaining to our lives. We worry so much about our physical livelihoods, but claim confidence that we have a secure, eternal livelihood. To be clear, there is no promise that we will have every physical need that we have met in this life, but we have this promise that he'll be there for us. He'll be there with us through it all. And honestly, that is all that we really need. So when we try to get things our own way, we end up with a failing faith that dishonors the one who promised to care for us. And as the story proceeds, it seems Abram's plan works, doesn't it? 
Sure, as he predicted, Sarah is seen to be very beautiful, and she's taken into the house of Pharaoh. And what is the result? Look at verse 16. And for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abram got exactly what he wanted. Even though he's in clear disregard to God, he got everything he wanted through deception, through lying, even though he's in clear disregard to God. And I think there's a warning for us here. Careful, thinking that your being successful despite clearly disobeying God, is God's endorsement of your disregard for him. I'll say that again. Be very careful thinking that you're being successful in whatever endeavor you're doing, despite clearly disregarding God, is God's endorsement of you. Somehow it seems in God's wisdom we actually can disregard him and also be successful in a worldly sense. And as we typically do, we even go to the extent of saying those blessings are from the Lord when we're clearly disregarding him. An interesting discovery soon happens. Pharaoh figures out the whole plot. Look at verse 17 through 19. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. The author doesn't tell us how Pharaoh figures this out. But we confidently can assume that somehow God makes sure that the word gets through to, uh, to Pharaoh and eventually through to Abram. In all this, we see that even though Abram is deceptive and lies to get comfort in this firmine, God seems to be actively at work toward his promises. In spite of Abraham's disregard of God and forgetfulness of God, he seems to still care about what he has promised. And we see a God who is faithful in his promises, despite our actions of faithlessness. And friends, our God is a constantly faithful God. And I want you to consider his faithfulness with me. I want to ask you a question. What is God's chiefest motivation? Or asked another way, what would you say is the thing that drives God to do everything that he does? And of course, the answer is his glory. So even as Abram has messed up, 
God is still going to be faithful to his promises and make sure that what he said would happen would indeed happen and that he be glorified through it all. But think about this for a second. If God said he would make Abram the father of many, many children, yet Abram is selling off his wife to the Egyptian ruler, it seems like Abram is literally working against God's interest and against God's plans for him. But even in the midst of that, as we see in verse 17, God sends a plague to Pharaoh's house. God brings trouble to the very thing that seems troublesome to his plans. Now, isn't that interesting? What wrong did Pharaoh do? You would think God would punish Abram for his lies, right? What wrong did Pharaoh do? But in this instance, it seems God is more pleased to, number one, get Sarai out of Pharaoh's house, hence these plagues come. But secondly, God seems interested in using this pagan ruler to point Abram to his fault and set him back on the right track. Why is it so important to God to get Sarai out of Pharaoh's house? If the promise to Abraham was offspring or kids, that is, a great nation, how could this be if Abraham's wife was in another man's household? Friends, you need to get this really clearly. God was protecting Sarah so that in due course, Jacob would be born. And if Jacob was born, then this nation called Israel would come. And very later on, a man named David would eventually come. And from the line of this man, Jesus, our Savior, would eventually be born. In other words, in saving Sarah by afflicting Pharaoh's house, God had you and me in mind, even back then. If a savior was to come to give you and me new life someday, if you and I were going to be adopted in this big family of God, God had to preserve Sarai so as to preserve his promise. Friends, God will do whatever he has to do to fulfill his promises and to reveal his glory. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 6. In verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And if you jump to verse 17, it says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God swore by himself and desired to show more convincingly the unchanging character of his purpose. 
and in afflicting Pharaoh's house for the sake of that promise, he's showing us that whatever he sets to do, he's going to do. I think this should be comforting to us. If God was powerful enough to afflict Pharaoh and his household for the sake of his purposes, I have no doubt he could have sustained Abram and Sarai in this famine in the Negev. If God can afflict Pharaoh and his household for the sake of his purposes, I am very sure that he can sustain you and me in the midst of our own ferments. God is faithful to his promises, even in the midst of a ferment. And this has two obvious implications for us. One is positive, and it is this. Trust God's ways. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're in an actual ferment. And maybe you're so confused because up to this point, you have done all things that you think are needful as a Christian to have a bountiful Christian life. But still, you're in a drought. I would like you to be encouraged to trust God's ways, even when they don't make any sense. It doesn't make sense for God to tell a man to leave his household, to go to a place that is furnished. But when God tells us to do something, we do it. When God says, this is how you live, we live like he says. How he says we love, we love like he says. How he says we pray, we pray like he says. We trust his ways because his ways are the faucet through which we experience his faithfulness. And the starting point for us to understand his ways is through reading this book. We get to know his ways as we read the pages of the Bible. How do you know that God is actually constantly and consistently faithful? We see it in the Bible. As we behold his word, we see him do incredible things. We see him fulfilling promises. We see him caring for his people. We see him doing what he said he would do generation after generation after generation. Paul says this to the Romans in chapter 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called to his purpose. He says to the church in Corinth, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. Trust his ways. See, one difference between God and us is that we have different viewpoints. Take a parade as an example. Uh, we actually went to the, our first 4th of July parade in Canfield. It was a lot of fun. Uh, when you watch a parade, you watch it progressively. You watch one band or one car after another. 
But God sees the whole parade. God, unlike us, is not waiting for one car to pass and then we wave, then our kids grab the candy, and then the next car, more candy. No, he's watching the whole parade. He doesn't have to wait for another band to come, another car to come. From the starting place to the finish, he's seeing the whole parade. He's seeing the whole package. That's why faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's why without faith, it is impossible to please God. You've got to believe that he sees what you cannot see. You have to believe that he's faithful. You have to believe that he sees what is not visible to you and I because we can't see what's around the corner. He's faithful, friends. Our God is faithful. You and I are prone to forget this, but God's word trains us to remember this ever-present, ever-faithful, covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his promises. The testimony of the scriptures, the testimony of some of our lives are that God has been faithful to us. Mankind falls short of that faithfulness. But God doesn't. Even when we're faithless, the Apostle Paul would say, God is still faithful because he cannot deny himself. Mankind is faithless and falls short. Abram fails in his faith. Moses fails in his faith. David fails in his faith. Solomon fails in his faith. They all seem to fail one way or another. But as we continue reading the pages of the Bible... We eventually meet one who will be perfectly faithful to God and one who would live a faithful life in active obedience to God. In the pages of the New Testament and the Gospels, we see Jesus, the faithful one, the trustworthy one who perfectly obeys God's will, unlike Abram. Through his life and his death, he demonstrates this faithfulness. It is him who we are to trust in our furnished state. Friends, in God sending us Jesus, we see that God is faithful, even in the midst of our firmine. God's faithfulness is entirely displayed through Christ. It is in Christ that we find forgiveness, that we find redemption, that we find hope for eternal life. When you put your faith in Christ, you're no longer defined by your failures of faith, but you're defined by his perfect righteousness. The perfect righteousness of the one whose faith never failed. So if you're here this morning, you're going through a famine. Could be spiritual, it could be emotional, it could be relational. I want you to know there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus. Jesus is the true Canaan. He is the true place where mankind can go to. Mankind can leave father, mother, and their countries to go to this place, this person, and find nourishment and find God's blessing.
blessing. Now the second obvious implication for us, which is negative, is this. The first one was trust in God's ways. The second one is lean not in your own understanding. Let me talk to young people in here for a second. Maybe you're here this morning and you're single and you have been searching for a good Christian man or woman to marry. It just doesn't seem to work out. You have two options. You could either actually trust in God and do things his way, or you can, like many Christian young people unfortunately do, you can do your own thing and succumb to the pressures of this fermine that you're in. You date non-believers because it's hard. It's a fermine to find a Christian man or a woman. Soon enough, you're sinning against God. The things of God and church mean less to you as they do to your unbelieving partner. Soon enough, sexual sin is the order of your life because your non-Christian partner doesn't have any obligation to God as you do. Like Abram, you justify it. Perhaps, unfortunately, even your parents encourage you because they want you to be happy. Besides, he's a good guy. He's from a good family. Self-preservation, justification kicks in. And like we see with Abram, perhaps there are things in that relationship that are actually enjoyable. Abram's plan actually works. There are things in that relationship that could actually be enjoyable. But still, you're leaning on your own understanding. My brother, my sister, I beg you. You are not smarter than God. Lean on his ways and not on your own, even in your firman. Lean on the one whose faith never failed, even when yours is faltering. And maybe you are married. Your spouse is perhaps not meeting some needs that you have. And perhaps you have found other means to get those needs met by someone else who's not your spouse or someone else on a screen somewhere. Brother, sister, I beg you, you are not wiser than God. Lean not in your own understanding in your family. When things are hard, talk to someone. Lean on Jesus whose faith does not falter, even when yours is tempted to. And I know things can be hard. I know life can be a famine. But friends, God is faithful to his promises, even in the midst of a drought. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him as the faithful one and he will make your path straight. So what do you do when the place to be becomes a place to flee Brother, sister, 
you trust in the faithful one who promised. Even in the midst of that famine, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning in thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Pray with me. Father, we confess that many times our faith fails. We confess, Lord, as we go through times of difficulty, we are tempted to chart our own course and our own paths. And Lord, we want to confess that to you. And Lord, we pray that we would put our faith and our trust in the faithful one who promised. The faithful one whose faith doesn't falter. That in the midst of our own droughts and our seasons of hardships, we will cling onto Jesus Christ, the one who cares for us. For those of us in the room that are far from him, we ask that you save them from that ferment of sin and death, that you give them nourishment through the good news of your gospel. And we pray these things through his name. Amen.